This season of What It Takes and this last episode of the season is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Google Nest Renew. Nest Renew is a new service that leverages eligible Nest thermostats to help you use less expensive or cleaner energy at times when more carbon-free sources are available on the grid. Even a lot of energy nerds, you don't, they don't know about marginal emissions intensity. They don't recognize that the grid is fluctuating continuously from hour to hour, minute to minute. And so being able to empower customers with the ability to automatically just use energy a little when it's a little less carbon rich and kind of a little less of the strain on the grid, that is just this amazing thing that we can do. That's Ben Brown, the product lead for Google Nest Renew. A bit later in the show, Ben will describe why Nest Renew is so valuable for people who want to support a clean energy future right from their homes. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. There are large swaths of the global economy that are very hard to decarbonize with renewables and batteries alone. Steel, cement, aviation, these industries are run on the high heat and explosive force of burning fossil fuels. Together, these activities make up the industrial basement of society, the often overlooked and essential sectors of the economy that can only be made possible in part by burning liquid and gaseous hydrocarbons. Cleaning up these sectors requires an energy-dense alternative that can go the distance. And that's exactly what today's guest, Electric Hydrogen CEO and co-founder Rafi Garabedian, is building. There certainly is a lot of interest across a wide range of sectors and use cases for deep decarbonization alternatives to fossil fuels. And hydrogen has emerged as the only viable solution for many of those applications. We exist fundamentally to speed up that transition and get to economic parity far faster than we think the industry will go on its own, unurged by aggressive and ambitious plans like ours. We use technology innovation to achieve that end. Rafi and the team at Electric Hydrogen are building the electrolyzers and supporting infrastructure that can produce the clean, green hydrogen needed to fuel our net-zero future. Globally, we produce 70 million tons of hydrogen a year, mostly through steam methane reforming, or SMR, a dirty process where steam and natural gas react under high heat and pressure to make hydrogen, while emitting an immense amount of carbon in the process. This kind of hydrogen, called gray hydrogen, is the cheapest kind of hydrogen we currently produce. So industrially, we use a lot of hydrogen in primarily two applications, one being the production of synthetic fertilizer, most fertilizer is synthetic, by the Haber-Bosch process, which combines hydrogen and nitrogen from the air to make ammonia. The other major application is in the petrochemical industry. Hydrogen is used to convert petrochemicals into more useful molecules. Hydrogen has the potential to replace the role of petrochemicals altogether. Burning hydrogen could generate high temperatures that heavy industry requires without any added carbon emissions. And it could also be used for synthetic fuels in aviation or shipping, moving people and goods around the world without harming the world. But in order to do so, hydrogen production has to clean up its act. So-called blue hydrogen tries to do this by using carbon capture at steam methane reforming or SMR sites, but it's expensive. 
if gray hydrogen is like smoking, blue hydrogen maybe is a bit like vaping. And, uh, you know, simply put, maybe we should stop smoking <laughs> altogether. Uh, that's how I think about it. The dream is green hydrogen that's produced using cheap electricity from renewables and generates no emissions in the process. And that's what Rafi and electric hydrogen are doing by building massive electrolyzers, tractor-trailer-sized machines that run electricity through water, splitting it into its basic elements, oxygen and hydrogen. The magic lies in the scale. Commercial electrolyzers today are typically 5 to 10, at most 20 megawatts in scale, but electric hydrogen is aiming for 100 megawatts to drive down costs. By building larger and more efficient electrolyzers with much higher energy inputs, the company aims to produce greater amounts of hydrogen at a lower price point. In most parts of the world where green hydrogen is being produced today, I would say the levelized cost of hydrogen is probably around 5 or $6 a kilogram. That is maybe three to four times higher than it needs to be in order for economic uptake to really start. The magic number, $1.50 per kilogram or less. That's the price green hydrogen has to reach in order to be competitive with gray hydrogen produced with natural gas. And that's the price electric hydrogen believes it can hit within the next few years if they go big fast. By selling and servicing their electrolyzers to customers, they're paving the way for green hydrogen to supplant fossil fuels across the economy. Not just for existing applications of hydrogen, primarily fertilizer and petrochemicals, but more importantly and more interestingly, the new emerging markets where hydrogen becomes an alternative for fossil resources in many other applications. So these range from the production of primary steel from ore, all the way to the intercontinental transport of energy. I spoke with Rafi about what it takes to move fast and break bonds in their journey to get green hydrogen down to fossil fuel price parity. We also talked about the balance between being a technologist and entrepreneur and the infrastructure and innovation we'll need for widespread green hydrogen use in tough to decarbonize industries. We started with Rafi's childhood in the suburbs of Boston as a son of Armenian immigrants, where he found a passion for technology at a time when he felt like an outsider. Starting with your childhood, you grew up in Belmont, a suburb of Boston, with your parents who immigrated from Armenia. Your dad was a doctor. Your mom was a full-time parent. Tell me about your parents and how they shaped you. <laughs> We're all products of our childhoods, aren't we? So, yeah, yeah my parents are, are first-generation immigrants. They moved to the country in 1965, I think. I was born in 1966. Uh, my dad was doing his residency uh, in a hospital in Boston. He was lucky enough to be invited to uh, to come to the U.S. They didn't know that they wanted to stay here at the time. He thought he was going to do his residency and go back, uh, go back home. But um, one thing led to another. Uh, I spent a good part of my early childhood going back and forth between Lebanon, Beirut, where my mother grew up, and Boston, so I spent a lot of time summers in, in Beirut and got to know the culture and my relatives there. Um, Armenian is actually my first language, so it took me a little while to transition to English when I was a kid. You know, as as the situation in the Middle East evolved, uh, it became clearer to them that uh, maybe the U.S. was a good place to land, and so we stayed. And what was your neighborhood like? You know, did you... I don't know what what were you like as a <laughs> kid, and and what was it like growing up in Belmont? Yeah, I was uh, I was kind of an oddball for the environment, right? So I don't know if your listeners know the Northeast or 
that part of Boston in particular, but it's uh, the term wasp wouldn't be overstating things. Um, it's a, you know, it's a very white middle-class upward mobile, mobile, uh, kind of a neighborhood, really nice place to grow up actually in a lot of regards. Um, but I did feel like an outsider, uh, my, my whole childhood, uh, my parents stretched really hard financially to send me to a really great school. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to a, a prep school called Belmont Hill school where I got a, um, an amazing education in, in classics, in, you know, I, I studied Latin in high school. That's kind of odd these days, but, uh, but it helps me to this day. I didn't get a really strong science education, interestingly, in high school. A lot of, a lot of math, but, but not a whole lot of depth in science. But that was clearly my passion um, from early childhood. I'm a tinkerer. I always have been. And I know, you know, computers were obviously still pretty new in the 70s, late 70s. Um, how did you find, you know, programming and the stuff that you ended up doing on your own because it wasn't really part of your education? Mm-hmm. Um, I famously in our family uh, pulled the vacuum tubes out of my dad's stereo before I could walk. Oh, so I'm sure he loved that. Was, yeah, yeah. And, and I survived it, which is, which is the good news. Um, so apparently my interests were obvious uh, from a very early age. You know, I can't count the number of times I nearly electrocuted myself or burned the house down, <laughs> tinkering with stuff in the basement, unbeknownst to my parents. Um, I spent my, you know, my high school years, my spare time, not playing sports, which was really the big thing in the school community I was in, but but building stuff, you know, everything from like homemade little robotic arms to uh, digital countdown timers for rocket launchers to this and that and the other thing. I was truly um, just a deep tinkerer and, and loved that stuff. Still do. So if you come to my garage, you will be overwhelmed with uh, <laughs> both the number of tools and the lack of space that results from too many tools uh, to, to build things. Yeah, it was it was an exciting time, uh, particularly for the semiconductor industry and the computer industry. So in our high school, being in the Boston area, folks think of Silicon Valley as the birthplace of the computer, right? Actually, it started in the Northeast. Uh, so Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, had donated a PDP-8 computer, mainframe computer, to our school a couple of years, a few years before I graduated. So we had the amazing opportunity to learn how to program in the basic language on a PDP-8 computer, which you had to boot up with switches on the front panel every time you wanted to turn it on. Uh, so that was my my entree into, into electronics, which ultimately led to my... Um, my seeking a degree and getting a degree in electrical engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic just up the road in uh, Troy, New York. Why RPI and what was your experience like there? Well, gee, I have, I have kids uh, who are college age. My son is in college now and my daughter is just going through the application process. She's a senior. Uh, it wasn't this hard back then. <laughs> yeah. So um, I applied to two schools very naively, didn't think much about it. Um, I got into one. I didn't get into the other. I applied to MIT and RPI, two you know really strong technical universities uh, nearby, close enough that I could stay close to my parents and be comfortable without uh, um, you know without sacrificing the quality of the uh, the education. I didn't get into MIT. I got into RPI, and that's where I went. It was a super hard school, 
right? It it was it was actually a meat grinder of a of a place at the time. Um, extremely challenging, uh, extremely rigorous in in kind of the the quality and nature of the education, um, rooted in first principles and basics of of engineering. I loved it. It was uh, it was isolated. It wasn't a great place to be a young man, <laughs> um, but uh, but man, it was my element uh, mm-hmm. for sure. And then in 1990, you moved out west to UC Davis in California with the intent of earning a PhD in electrical engineering. But while you were there, you and some lab mates developed a new kind of microsensor that you believed could have really meaningful impacts in the automotive industry. And so you converted your PhD to a master's so that you could leave Davis sooner than expected to co-found Micromachines, a MEMS company that produced these tiny machines and sensors on chips. What happened to the company and what did you learn? from building your first startup? Yeah, I, I had a brief interlude um, uh, in sculptural bronze casting for about two years between my undergrad and my master's. Um, during my undergrad, I had gotten very interested in man-machine interfaces, human-machine interfaces, neural networks, which were really at the early, early days of being an idea back then. When I decided it was time to go back to school, I was in uh, Northern California and a friend was getting a PhD in computer science at UC Davis and uh, suggested that uh, I should come by and visit. So I did. I walked around and looked at some posters on the walls, and I noticed uh, some really interesting work around the nexus of microelectronics processing technology and mechanics, two subjects that interest me deeply, uh, in, a, in biotechnology applications. And so I talked to the professor, and she said, uh, gee, I have a project for you. Um, We'd love to have you on the team. And we went from there. During the course of of working towards my PhD, I did a lot of laboratory work and met some great people. And, um, you know, as will happen, uh, sometimes we had ideas. And, you know, at at the time, this idea of MEMS, microelectromechanical systems, so the integration of little machines onto semiconductor chips, was just taking off. Um, and the the big next frontier in MEMS was the integration of the MEMS device, the mechanical device, onto a CMOS integrated circuit, which could then process the signals from to and from the MEMS device. That's what we were thinking about in the lab. And uh, my, my lab mates and I kind of stumbled on, if you will, an uh, interesting and novel idea for a new kind of sensor physical sensor. So pressure and acceleration sensing was the topic of interest. Yeah, one thing led to another and we decided, gee, we'd like to do this thing. We'd actually like to build this and it could have an impact in the world. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a thing at the time to leave your PhD program and start a company, at least not that I knew of, but um, kind of fits my character. Um, I'm very careful with risk. I like to think things through and have plans but at critical junctures in my life, I have often thrown caution to the wind and kind of just gone for it. And that was one of those moments where I knew what I wanted. It wasn't academia. Um, it was entrepreneurship and it was bringing a thing to reality in a way that really was real. Uh, and so starting a company seemed like the smart thing to do. It was, uh, wasn't necessarily smart, but it was... Uh, it's super interesting, and I'm grateful I had the opportunity to do it. What happened to the company? So um, we failed to raise capital. Uh, we self-financed for uh, 
a year and a half, we developed some prototypes literally in garages, um, begging and borrowing space and time in local uh, local fabs where we could process wafers into, into things. We demonstrated the concept, reduced it to practice, um, got our patents kind of through. And uh, ultimately, we ended up selling the company after uh, maybe two and a half years of trying to build it ourselves. Um, we sold it to a company in Southern California that um, that ultimately, it still exists, but it's been transacted a number of times. But at the time, it was a privately held company called Cavlico. Some of your listeners might have heard of the Cavley Prize in physics. Uh, Fred Cavley was the founder and owner of Cavlico, and the prize is named after him because he funded it uh, with his endowment. I worked for Fred Cavley for five years uh, in his company. We um, He acquired our technology, and uh, it was a, you know, a nice deal for us, actually, not only in that we recognize some some return on our sweat equity building this this concept um, and building the little company called Micromachines Inc. that we sold to him, but also because I got an incredible education in commercialization of a technology. So the end market we went after with with Cavlico was automotive pressure sensing, particularly on-engine pressure sensing for air pressure. Um, well, to get onto an automotive platform, Ford and Chrysler were our customers, is an arduous process. I learned about quality systems. I learned about high volume manufacturing. I learned about everything it takes to convince a company like Ford uh, to take a take a chance on a new technology. It was an amazing, amazing time. Um, five very, very intense years, uh, during which uh, I actually married my wife, uh, Carissa. And then you became the head of technology at Integrated Micromachines, a new optical telecommunications company built off of tech that your friend developed. And then that ended after the dot-com bubble burst, but you were able to continue to work on the tech through a new entity, Touchdown Technologies, a company you founded in 2020, uh, in 2003. Um, what did you learn from building these companies? Yeah, my my really good friend, uh, Denny Mew, uh, started a company. He was he was a UCLA professor, Caltech researcher in um, disk drive read-write head technology, mechatronics. Um, he concocted a vision to make um, components, uh, optical telecommunication components, you know, going after this new thing, optical telecom, right, fiber optics. Um, how do you switch those signals? How do you modify those signals, filter them actively, all of the componentry necessary to build a real fiber optic network and scale it um, using a variant of MEMS technology? So, um, you know, we we knew each other for years before. Um, and when he found out that uh, I was moving on from the prior work, he invited me to join them. And uh, ultimately, you know, I became his, his uh, head of engineering for integrated micromachines. As you said, um, there were great times that ended abruptly with the, um, well, first with with 9-11 and then kind of shortly after that with the, the bubble burst of, uh, of, you know, the first wave of the internet and the telecommunications industry kind of collapsing under it. Um, and we were left holding the bag on some incredible technology we developed, um, products ready for market, but no customers. So that's... Uh, that's that's not a unique story. That's a story that probably many of your many of your guests uh, have recounted in one way or another to you. We liquidated the company, ultimately shut it down, and there was little cash left in the bank account after all that. Uh, and so I and a really literally a handful of colleagues decided, you know, 
maybe we'll talk to the investors about letting us take this cash because, you know, investors don't necessarily want the remnants of a startup back. It's kind of not even worth the paperwork. But to us, it was the seed that we could we could start a new company from to pursue other market opportunities. So we did that. That resulted, uh, ultimately turned into Touchdown Technologies, which um, really leveraged the same technology platform we had developed at Integrated Micromachines for a new market, different market, which in, in the semiconductor test industry is called a probe card. Um, think about 10 or 20,000 tiny little mechanical springs on a substrate that are designed to make electrical connection to the chips on a wafer to test them. So we built probe cards for um, high parallelism memory tests, uh, sold those probe cards to companies like Expansion, AMD, Intel, Micron, et cetera. The company was ultimately sold to Verigy, which uh, is the test equipment spin out from Hewlett Packard, uh, and actually still exists to this day making probe cards. So then in 2008, you get a call from a recruiter at First Solar who put you in touch with your now co-founder and CTO, David Eaglesham, who was an executive at First Solar at the time, who sold you on working at First Solar. And so you came on as Director of Disruptive Technologies, which is a great title, and then spent almost 13 years there, eventually serving as CTO for eight years. What was it like working in solar over the course of your time at First Solar? And what was it like working with Dave? <laughs> yeah, I first met Dave um, when I was pitching Touchdown Technologies to Applied Ventures, and he was in the CTO's office there and reviewed the deal. And uh, he didn't like the deal. They didn't invest. But apparently he liked me. So when he wanted to start up a internal R&D effort um, in new solar technologies, different thin films other than cadmium telluride for solar's mainstay here in the Bay Area... Uh, he thought of me and gave me a call, and the timing was perfect. I didn't know that the timing was perfect. I didn't know that I needed what he was pitching me, but um, but it turned out to be life life changing for me. So you know, Dave came to me with an incredibly passionate description of what the solar industry could be and could mean for humanity at large. And uh, man, he 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 gave me exactly what I didn't know I needed, as I said. Um, I had spent most of my career, really my life, enamored by the solution. You know, the engineers are often, we, we love the problem itself, right? We love solving things. We love the machinery. We love the object that we're working on, the technology itself. And, and you know, that's a beautiful thing in a sense, because the journey is the end, right, as an engineer. But um, what I didn't know I was missing was a compelling reason to be doing what I love doing, right? A purpose to it. Um, at Touchdown Technologies, making probe cards, really, if you think about it, the ultimate purpose is to make flash memory chips a penny or two cheaper to produce, right? It's a lot of work, amazing technology, blood, sweat, and tears, all to the purpose of making those things a little cheaper, you know, that's that's how technological progress works, and that's what it takes to make the world better. But that effort in and of itself wasn't terribly satisfying at its core. Um, now switch over to the energy transition, to uh, global climate change, and actually um, attempting to build technologies and bring them to market at a scale that can have a positive impact. Wow. Now I can ply my trade doing something that that matters. 
And uh, yeah, that that little spark, you know, caught with me, and I haven't looked back ever since. So super thankful and grateful for Dave, now my co-founder at Electric Hydrogen, for for giving me that gift. And so you were there until end of 2020 when you amicably resigned from First Solar, and as a technologist. In your time there, you realized that the main issue holding solar development back had nothing to do with the technology itself. Right, Emily, exactly. Um, over my tenure at First Solar, we saw, we helped create a solar industry that was cheaper and cheaper and cheaper at a really rapid phase, uh, pace, you know, ending up at price points where solar generation really kind of is the cheapest alternative in most places in the world where it's relevant. So um, great success uh, in that regard. But we saw over and over again in the market that we'd have tremendous uptake due to price competitiveness of the resource. And then we'd hit a point of penetration where uptake would kind of slow down and grind to a halt. And that all has to do with the difficulty of integrating renewables, variable intermittent renewables onto the electric grid beyond a certain level of penetration. It depends on the grid, where you are in the world, what that exact level is, but every place there's a there's a limit. And once you reach it without long duration battery storage, you really can't push much more renewables onto the grid because, you know, fundamentally we need power when the sun's not shining, right? That's the bottom line. Uh, and in order to do that, we have to spin up thermal resources. Now, at First Solar, we had thought long and hard about this over the years, right? Should we be involved in helping to lift that constraint? How would we do so? And, you know, the obvious answer is battery storage, but battery storage is expensive and it's extremely difficult to make it cheap. So, um, you know, we, we weren't really very interested in pursuing that. A lot of great companies are pursuing it and are better at electrochemistry than First Solar is. Um, so, you know, at, at the end of it, I think I came to the personal realization that continuing to drive down the marginal cost of solar no longer served my mission interest. And so I would seek another, another path, right? What's the next opportunity? to start to address those constraints. Because I'm still a deep believer in solar and wind and renewables. Now the constraint to their adoption is no longer cost. We solved that problem. Now their constraint to adoption is integration. So when you step back from that integration challenge and you think a little more broadly at the system level, you have the opportunity now to think about more than just the electric system. And you start to realize, oh, wait, there's this thing people have been talking about for decades, P to X. What is P to X? Power to molecules. That's an interesting way to lift the constraint for more solar and wind adoption with ultimately the goal of decarbonization. So how do we do P to X? How do we do that um, cost effectively? Because, you know, another thing, a lesson I learned from First Solar is that in the energy industry, the commodity businesses of the world, which are fundamental to our existence, right? They're the bedrock of human society. Price matters. Price matters more than almost anything else. And we can snap our fingers and wish that everybody would just do the right thing and spend more for a carbon-free solution. Um, that's easy to say, very, very hard to, to realize. The fastest way to decarbonize is to be cheap enough that people want to buy your product on its own merits, right? So, 
head scratch, head scratch. How do we do that um, in the P2X world? And uh, um, that got me talking to Dave again, who was at the time a entrepreneur in residence at Breakthrough Energy Ventures thinking about this problem. And uh, that's what led us to um, a technology platform that we're now developing and commercializing at Electric Hydrogen. Coming up, Rafi and Dave reconnect, build their founding team, and set their sights on improving the economics behind green hydrogen. But first, a word from our exclusive sponsor of this season of What It Takes, Google Nest. Ben Brown is the product lead at Google Nest Renew. He's been building home automation products for 15 years, including as a founder of Google Wi-Fi. Your responsibility as a product designer, product developer, is to build the best product possible, to just make it as easy and simple and enjoyable and make people's experience in their home better. Today, Ben is focused on Nest Renew, a new service that helps you support a clean energy future with your eligible Nest thermostat. And so if we can have customers at the forefront of showing the power of what we call energy shift, but being able to do that across millions of households to be able to kind of showcase what is possible is something that we really believe is critical to speeding up the transition. With a feature called Energy Shift, Nest Renew lets you heat and cool your home when more clean energy is available on the grid. And if you're on a time of use rate with your electric utility, Energy Shift can help you shift usage to times of the day when energy is less expensive. We are all key components and key parts of that solution. The massive challenge uh, in making that uh, work really, really well uh, without a ton of unnecessary infrastructure is really going to make it so that all homes and businesses are able to kind of use energy in an intelligent way to really support that transition. Want to do more to address climate change? Nest Renew offers a simple place to start. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. And so you reconnect with Dave realized that this could be something big. And then you brought in two other co-founders, Derek Warnick, who was an operating partner also at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, and then Dorian West, who was at Tesla. We're going to develop green hydrogen plants and that the electrolyzer itself is going to be the size of a tractor trailer and it's going to sit on an acre's worth of super efficient equipment for water circulation and purification and thermal management with the belief that all of that will drive down the cost of green hydrogen to at or below $1.50 a kilo. Is that right? We we looked at the problem from a system perspective, and we did that because we are, you know, by training from First Solar, um, I'm an amateur project finance guy. Uh, I play one on TV. Derek Warnick, our CFO, um, he actually has been a, uh, a project finance, renewables project finance guy. So that, that's what he did for a living prior to um, joining Breakthrough Energy Ventures. So, you know, we think about the world that way. And when you think about it holistically, how do you drive down the levelized cost of hydrogen? You have to consider all of the costs that a project developer and owner ultimately will face, which then defined our product market fit. It wasn't enough to, if your goal is to help make hydrogen cheap, it's not enough just to make a really great electrolyzer stack with this cool technology and sling it out there into the world. Because two-thirds of the costs of building an electrolyzer plant today are all the other stuff. The power conversion, the EPC to stick build a electrolyzer plant at a site, yada, yada, right? So when we looked at it holistically and we analyzed the overall cost stack up, it became very clear. We have to pre-engineer a complete solution to meet the unmet needs of our customers. 
So that's what we went out to do. Now, when we started this thing, it was entirely hypothetical and I think pretty bold to think about electrolysis plants at the 100 megawatt scale, right? So a plant that consumes 100 megawatt input and produces 50 tons per day of hydrogen. But to put that in context, two years ago, I think the global installed capacity of operating electrolyzers was probably around 300 megawatts total (laughs) in the world. Yeah. And you're thinking about an individual plant being 100 megawatts. Yeah, an an individual product, like the thing we sell, right, is a third of the global capacity. So you could say that was crazy, and it was. It was insane. Um, But I would also say it was skating to where the puck is going, not where the puck is, right? So we started this thing with the anticipation of a burgeoning industry at scale. And when we looked at the applications that need hydrogen at scale— fertilizer production, steel production, cement production, energy vector for transport of energy. Those are all problems that occur at the gigawatt and terawatt scale. So a 100 megawatt product made perfect sense. Product market fit made perfect sense. We just didn't know who the customers would be. And we had (laughs) to develop those customers um, from, from whole cloth in a way. Now, a lot has happened since we started the company. And our our hypothesis about that being the right scale has really come to be true. And and it's um, you know, it's really gratifying actually that we have um we have really strong customer traction now. Um in no small part because of uh the IRA, the uh Inflation Reduction Act here in the US, which has incentivized people to build large-scale plants. Um, but also kind of the global energy situation. So energy availability, energy security, um, everything that's happened in Europe has had huge ripple effects in the energy markets. And so people are thinking about energy differently now. Energy transition is no longer just about decarbonization, as if that's not enough. It's also now about energy security and about independence of energy supply. And so these are all factors that weigh into the, you know, I guess, what was a prescient decision to build a product at that scale. Definitely want to talk more about your first customers and the IRA. But first, Electric Hydrogen officially began in December of 2020. So just eight months into COVID, which was a tricky time to be starting a company and certainly a tricky time to be fundraising, which you didn't. You self-financed for the first six months ahead of your Series A. So the Series A was the first round, and that was in 2021. Why? bootstrap? Why not raise a seed round? Um, yeah, you know, um, if you can bootstrap, you should, because um, there's no one who understands the risk that you're undertaking and how to mitigate it as well as you do. So, um, you know, if you think about the price of capital, the cost of capital, right, it's proportional to the risk that the investor feels they're taking, their perceived risk. And, and risk is highest at the earliest days of starting a company. So that cost of capital is really high. You have to sell a lot of your company when you, when you haven't thought things through yet, right? The more you can think things through, take it forward, demonstrate it, bring it to reality, the lower the cost of capital, the less of your company you have to spend. So it's, it's, it's quite pragmatic and, and simple. I'd also say that raising capital is a huge distraction on a management team. It's a necessary one. It, in a way, makes you better because you have to explain yourself 
to someone else in a compelling manner, which forces you to think things through better. But there's the right timing for doing that, right? And and at the early days of starting a venture, you do have to sit back and relax and think objectively and um, and critically about about your plans. And you know, I think that's best done on your own dime. So. You know, we have the, we had the luxury uh, between Dave Dorian and myself. We had the luxury of doing that, uh, so so we did. What were the first roles that you hired for as your self financing? And looking back, were those the right roles to prioritize? I think our first hire was Alex Panchula, um, who joined us as our head of uh, product management. So really thinking through the product market fit, right? And I think that was absolutely a, a, a correct role. So to, to start with, um, a lot of startups, particularly in deep tech, hard tech, spin up with a technology focus first. We came at this problem from a market perspective first and then built a technology platform to address that market need. I think that's the right order of operations, quite honestly. And, you know, I've made the mistake of doing it the other way a number of times in my career and it's been okay, but uh, but I've learned my lesson. Uh, so start with product market fit. Now, you know, after that, we focused almost exclusively on technology hires because we knew what problem we were trying to solve. We knew where the market we think we thought we knew where the market would head, um, and then it was a matter of reducing a whole bunch of technical ideas to practice, analyzing them, demonstrating them. Uh, and and that's all work in the laboratory analytical work. So we we hired electrochemists, we hired electrical engineers, we hired uh, plant engineers, mechanical folks. Yeah, that's that was the bulk of the hiring, all in the time of COVID. So yeah, super challenging. Yeah, and then how did you go about once you made those hires developing the initial technology? Especially because where did you get the equipment? Where did you get the facilities? Like it's in the middle of COVID and you're self-financing? <laughs> well, we didn't we didn't start doing experimental work until we raised our, seri- our Series A. Okay. I'm 56 years old, so I'm an old guy. So I called it a Series A. Um, I think these days you'd call it a seed. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> series seed. Yeah, no, but there's pre-seed. Yeah, yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. tried to sell me on a, a dirt round. I was like, no, <laughs> we're not doing dirt rounds. I've never heard that. That's brilliant. <laughs> and that hopefully brilliant. we never will again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so semantics aside, we, we raised a chunk of cash um, to, to go build a lab. Um, we built a lab really quickly. We got lucky and found a perfect facility uh, uh, around the Boston area, which is where half of our people are. Um, we're a bi-coastal company. We have operations in California, which is where I sit, uh, in San Carlos and in Natick, Massachusetts. So we found a great lab, wet benches, fully equipped, ready to go and jumped right in. Um, one of our first hires, Danielle, started buying equipment and literally stacking it in her living room while we were <laughs> <laughs> uh, negotiating the lease. Um, we have pictures of her cat sitting on boxes of electrochemistry gear. Yeah, it's super fun. <laughs> we also began the initial technology development work with university partners in Germany. So uh, we did a bunch of work identifying the right partners to work with who had not only the laboratories up and running, but also the technical expertise and wherewithal to try the things we wanted to try from a solid baseline. And that was incredibly accelerating to our R&D efforts because, you know, we, we very rapidly were able to get up to the industry state of the art and then 
push from there. So, uh, you know, those are maybe two tricks um, that were incredibly helpful to us. So then in June of 2021, last year, Electric Hydrogen did raise a 24 million Series A led by our friends at Breakthrough Energy Ventures with participation from Prelude and Capricorn. What was it like raising the A? Great investors, amazing people, human beings, but also amazing platforms. Um, the A was, um, you know, I'd never say raising money is easy, but relatively speaking, the A was easy for us to raise um, because Dave had been an EIR at Breakthrough Energy Ventures. He was deeply involved in forming, forming Breakthrough Energy's internal hypothesis on hydrogen, right? Hydrogen as a decarbonization pathway. And so that relationship was super tight. Our lead investor at Breakthrough is Dave Danielson. I've known Dave for years and years and years since RPE days. So, you know, it is about relationships because raising money is actually about two things. It's about vision and it's about trust. And, you know, the trust piece of it is maybe the most important piece, maybe as a result of a fairly long career um, in both startups and in at First Solar in energy and renewables. Um, we had both of those, uh, both of those elements working for us. So, you know, we were lucky enough to also know incredible people at uh, Prelude, at uh, Capricorn Ventures, and um, we're thankful to bring them in as well. Uh, so raised a nice Series A. Uh, went from there. And then not too many months later, um, we also brought in uh, Energy Impact Partners, uh, led by Shale Khan over there. Uh, shout who, out to Shale and Dave. Yeah, and shout out mentioned. to Shale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a great, a great, an amazing group of people. Again, you know, all, every one of them, great human beings, and also really deeply committed to the vision of uh, deep decarbonization. So at its core, Electric Hydrogen is an equipment company your customers are actually going to buy the electrolyzer, this trailer tractor size electrolyzer. Is that right? Yeah, we um, we're pretty simple people. <laughs> uh, we don't we <laughs> we we don't love super complex business models. Um, we sell hardware, and you know we sell services associated with hardware. You know, think about commissioning the electrolyzer. Think think about like maintaining it over time. But uh, yeah, at its core, we are an equipment company. Um, the product is, you know, as you mentioned in the, the preview, it's, it's, it's about an acre in footprint. So it's a whole bunch of trailer-sized um, modular skidded units. You know, if you've ever driv driven around the, the oil patch in Texas, you've seen process equipment on skids sitting around in fields. A lot of it looks like that. The, um, the part we manufacture, the core electrolyzer unit, is actually a small part of the physical plant, um, but it's where the real value resides. Um, it's, the, it's the piece of the puzzle that makes everything else possible at that scale. You mentioned earlier that you weren't sure who your customers were going to be when you started the company. Do you know now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do know now. We have, um, we have bookings. Uh, it's not public, so I can't share who they are, but... Um, uh, yeah, we have solid bookings. There's there's a, a significant book of demand that we're working through and negotiating. It's it's a great place to be right now. And actually, I wish we were um, we were even closer to deliveries than we are because the market is is there uh, again, stimulated by the factors we we discussed. You know, the kind of the global energy um, milieu and and also the uh, the IRA and other stimulus regimes in different countries. I know you can't name specific names, but can you talk about the types of customers that they are? 
at the beginning of the company, we were really focused on the highest value applications for hydrogen, which are the applications that are in use today. So places where people are using hydrogen today, ammonia production um, and uh, petrochemical industry, that's where people are and should be willing to pay the most for the molecule, for the hydrogen molecule. And then we thought, you know, as we go down the learning curve and prices come down and we learn how to make hydrogen cheaper and cheaper, other segments which are much bigger will will begin to adopt, like, for example, the steel industry, right? Interestingly, that's not what's happened. So the first customers who we have orders with are doing other things with the hydrogen. They're not doing the obvious thing where people use hydrogen today. They're converting it to other molecules for use as a fuel, for example. That's not the highest economic use case today for hydrogen, but it is actually one of the highest decarbonization use cases, right? So the carbon impact of that application is is better than the carbon impact of fertilizer production, for example, because the emissions are higher in that particular um, particular thing than in than in ammonia production. So, yeah, we're we're surprised by how the market is evolving and where customers are actually deploying or going to be deploying electrolyzers. The kinds of customers we deal with range from retooled renewables developers who are now, you know, have raised capital and are now firmly P2X developers, all the way to large industrials who want to self-develop and own hydrogen production facilities for their own industrial processes. Whole gamut, whole range of applications and customer types. Super interesting. So you have bookings, and Electric Hydrogen is set to launch its first pilot next year in 2023 and hopes to start making and selling electrolyzers in 2024. While the use cases for hydrogen in various sectors are vast, and you've talked about many of them, you've said that for hydrogen to contribute towards decarbonization, more innovation is going to be needed in industries like aviation and heavy industries to make good use of it. How do you think about those innovations that need to happen and how ready do you think those industries are for your product? Huge spectrum of readiness. And, and really, I think that goes to who will adopt first. It's, it's not just about where the highest economics exist, but it's also about market readiness to adopt. So, you know, the, the ready markets, you would again say, are ammonia production, existing ammonia production and petrochemicals. But it turns out those markets have established supply relationships that are very hard to break into. So not necessarily the first place you see adoption. Um, you mentioned aviation. You know, that's probably a longer term market application because there's a lot of downstream retooling. I think over the next 20 years, um, bigger point, we're looking at the rebuilding of a huge, huge amount of industrial infrastructure, all the way from how airports are fueled to how steel and basic commodities are made, where they're made as a result, how energy is moved. All of this involves massive infrastructure investments that are going to be deployed and have to be deployed in order to decarbonize. So that takes a long time. And I think that time horizon, again, depends on where you are and what you're trying to do. So, you know, part of the the problem for a startup is, you know, uh, 
finding those early adopter markets that are going to move fast enough to get get you off to off the ground and get you to critical scale. Um, and that's that's what we look for at electric hydrogen, right? We look for customers who are um, ready to move and whose use case and offtake for the product is clear and makes sense. We're taking a risk with each other. The customer's taking a risk on us and our ability to deliver this technology, but we're also taking a risk on their their ultimately their ability to finance and build that project and consume our product. Earlier this year, in June, you raised $198 million Series B, which included equity and debt or equipment financing. It was led by our friends at Fifth Wall Climate Tech. That brings total capital raised to $222 million. Who else participated in the Series B? Yeah, we raised our Series B, uh, as you said, in March of this year, and it was led by Peter Gajdos at Fifth Wall Ventures. Um, he joined Fifth Wall not too much before, I think, doing our deal um, to to really stand up their their focused effort in uh, decarbonization and climate tech. So you know we were really lucky to uh, to have Peter's interest and um, and his lead uh, on our round. We we did br- bring in as you mentioned some debt instruments into the deal. So with Silicon Valley Bank, our banker, Trinity Capital on um, equipment financing. We also brought in some financial investors. Um, uh, notably S2G Ventures, uh, Lucas Walton's uh, fund, a really, really interesting list of strategic investors. So, you know, in the startup world, there's a lot to say about strategic investors on your cap table. It's a whole topic we could probably talk about for an hour. Um, there are merits and demerits to the concept, but um, we tried to be very thoughtful about bringing in strategics who could help us both in the short term and in the long term with the market development for our product. And so they range from Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund and Kosan Industries to Equinor Ventures, Honeywell Ventures, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, and Rio Tinto. So you get a flavor for like the the range of industries and use cases that are represented there, um, which is a powerful combination for us as a startup to understand how our customers or our customers' customers are ultimately thinking about um, this pathway to decarbonization in their businesses. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs that are raising today, especially attempting to build something as big and complicated as electric hydrogen is? First, let me start with five or seven years ago. I don't think it would be possible to do what we're doing today. It was very difficult to raise money in that time frame for hard tech or deep tech. I don't know what to call it. I'm old enough. We used to just call it tech, but <laughs> now that means something different. So uh, yeah, for, for hard tech companies. Um, and it was equally hard to raise money for climate tech companies. So the combination is kind of the cross product of those two, almost impossible, right? What we're doing at the scale we're doing it at is very capital intensive. And so, you know, we've raised a lot of capital. We're going to raise more. But it takes that kind of capital to to materialize these concepts. We're incredibly lucky to be in a time and place where that's possible. Uh, So first, I want to start there. Now, having said that, um, I think right now we're in a weird uh, environment. There's a lot of secular headwinds. You know, the economy is kind of flaky and shaky. A lot of things going on in the world, interest rates going up. We don't know if we're entering recession or not. And if we do, how long it'll last. 
all that stuff makes it a very tough time to raise capital. And, you know, Emily, your, your listeners and, and you, you're in the venture business, right? You, you know what's going on with valuations today. You know what's going on with deal flow. It's, it's a tough environment. That's on the negative side of the ledger. On the positive side of the ledger, we've got these tailwinds like the IRA, um, like the situation, energy situation in Europe, and frankly, the unstoppable global galvanized effort to decarbonize. So we are absolutely in the right sector. And as a result, there's a lot of serious investor interest despite the secular uh, headwinds. So good story, good news, bad news story. I think my advice to um, would-be entrepreneurs who want to raise capital is be flexible. Um, This is not a time or a place to be overly indexed on valuation or on dilution, which, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs and investors tend to focus on. I think this is a time to focus on building a healthy balance sheet so that you can actually operate and grow your business and execute. Very well said. You mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law this past August. Obviously, it'll have huge implications for climate tech broadly, including hydrogen. It includes a 10-year production tax credit for clean hydrogen production facilities with incentives beginning at $0.60 a kilogram for hydrogen produced in a way that captures more than half of SMR, or steam methane reforming process carbon emissions, with workforce development and wage requirements met, and then it rises to a dollar a kilogram with higher carbon capture rates before jumping to $3 a kilogram for hydrogen produced with nearly no emissions. How will those incentives affect electric electric hydrogen and the hydrogen industry broadly? Yeah, um, the IRA has turned electrolyzers into money printing machines (laughs) is the simplest way to put it. Um, Now, you know, I I joined for solar in 2008 at the height of the German feed-in tariff. Um, For those of your listeners who don't know what that is, that was the incentive program in Germany that really kickstarted the the solar industry and created the, the demand that started driving down costs through learning rate. That incentive structure was overwrought and ultimately became too expensive to bear for the German government, and it was ultimately withdrawn. The same thing happened in other European countries around that time frame, around 2012. So, you know, the old adage, right? If it's too good to be true, it probably is. I'm grateful for the IRA. It's it's an amazing kickstart for this industry. I am also cautious that over time, as we start to see deployments pick up, and we start to see those subsidies materialize, there will be pressures to gradually reduce the subsidies and ultimately withdraw them. And there should be. Really, you know, you asked earlier, what's our reason to exist? Our reason to exist is to make renewable, green, fossil-free hydrogen economically viable without subsidies. That's how we build the industry to the scale that actually matters in decarbonization. So in a way... Um, part of my my mission statement here is to make the IRA irrelevant <laughs> so that it can be withdrawn and we are still in an incredible market for our product. So I am cautious about it. I'm thankful for it. But, um, you know, we'll see how it, it, uh, it resolves over time. Certainly in the short term, it is stimulating a lot of demand for our product. When you reflect on building the company thus far, uh, how many people have you brought onto the team and what have you learned about hiring since you started Electric Hydrogen? Hiring is hard. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're we're up over 150 people today. Um, so we're a pretty big company for a startup. Um, the vast majority That's over of those two years. Pe- yeah, yeah, yeah. Over two years in COVID. Yeah, the, the the vast majority of those people are technical. So they range from, as I said, physicists and electrochemists to to mechanical engineers and power engineers and whatnot. Yeah, hiring's difficult. Uh, it's also kind of the core problem description for building a company, right? If you get right down to it, because every solution you come up with is a result of super smart people kind of focused around a, a vision and a mission, right? So... Uh, yeah, it's hard to do. Um, we spend a lot of time recruiting. We spend a lot of time screening candidates. And uh, and so far, it's been working pretty well. I think, you know, we're in a, again, we're, we're in a lucky place in that the problem we're trying to solve is a lot of smart, ambitious people, um, particularly in the technical realm, want to help solve this problem, right? And so it's, it is a great place to be from a hiring perspective. The mission resonates. And, and uh, you know, for obvious reasons. And um, that's, that's definitely made it easier for us. If you could go back in time two years ago when you were starting the company, what advice would you give yourself? I guess um, I, guess I would just encourage myself to, uh, to do what we're doing. Yeah, I don't know that there's anything I would do different uh, except to comfort myself that, uh, you know, it's going to be hard, but it's worth it. What has been the single worst day at Electric Hydrogen so far? You know, I don't think we've had a worse day yet. We've had a number of surprises, but I'm used to surprises. Um, you know, having been through the, the the ringer enough times, I anticipate them. I expect them. In fact, I get nervous when things aren't going badly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I would say there hasn't been a worse day, uh, to be quite honest, which isn't doesn't mean there isn't going to come that that isn't going to come down the road, right? Um, in a startup, you're always prepared for that, and and things can go nonlinear very quickly. But uh, so far, so good. What's been the single best day? Ooh, um, well, you know, closing a fundraise is always a bit of elation that is very very short lived and should be <laughs> short lived. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't say that's our single best day. I would say our single best day was when um, our sales associate who closed our first firm contract hit the gong that we used to celebrate deals. <laughs> that, nice. that would be our best day. Nice. What's the associate's name? Um, Omar. Omar. Omar Shafair. Omar. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to Omar. How has your leadership style changed since you started the company, if it has? Constantly changing. Um, I'm learning a lot from the people I work with. Uh, I always have through my career, and and surprise, surprise, I'm still learning, and uh, uh, constantly evolving. I guess I would say, you know, I don't know how someone else would describe my leadership style. Um, I guess, uh, you know, one of the things I'm having to learn uh, in this role with this company is how to work with a different generation than I've been used to working with. So, first solar was not. The, the R&D team at First Solar was not a young team. It was a somewhat mature team. Um, but here at Electric Hydrogen, we've hired a lot of young people who are amazing, talented folks who just have a different, slightly different worldview, different expectations, different way of working. And I'm learning a lot about them and from them. 
Can you speak to your experience as an Armenian-American man leading a climate tech company in an industry that is majority white, majority male? I'm an American of Armenian descent, and I don't okay. say that to pick on the way you said it. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but it's a hot button for me because, um, because I'm grateful and my, my parents are grateful for being in this country, um, mm. truly, truly. And so we're Americans first. But uh, but our heritage is deeply Armenian. And, you know, as I said, it's my first language. You know, if you surprise me in the middle of the night, I might speak Armenian uh, <laughs> instead of English. Uh, um, I've always felt like I've had a foot in both worlds, a little bit like an outsider. Um, you know, I, I, I don't look like a wasp. <laughs> no offense to white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but, you know, I'm, I'm white. Uh, Armenians are Caucasians, but I don't fit into that neat little bucket. Right, and certainly I have a different worldview than somebody who, um, who you know, has only seen the American way of life and American culture and society. How has that influenced uh, me in the energy industry? Um, yeah, I'm a bit of an oddball, right? The energy industry is a super white male dominated industry, as you know, Emily. Right? It's it's um it's a hard industry to change, um, and. Uh, you know, it's kind of slow to change in many ways. Look, I mean, ideas float, right? Good ideas float, hard work floats. Um, that's the way I approach this question. And we, we, we try to knock it out of the park. We try to bring a lot of value to those around us. And we, we trust that, um, that we'll find ourselves in the company of good people who, you know, might have preconceptions, but are eager to look past those preconceptions. You are a partner to your wife and a parent to your two kids. You mentioned one in college and one about to go to college. What's it been like being a partner and a parent and a founder and a CEO all at the same time? My wife puts up with me, <laughs> and, I, and I love her deeply, um, in no small part for that. Uh, but uh, but it's it's hard, right? It's hard being the um, the partner, the spouse of somebody who's um, who's so whose mind is so occupied with the complexities and magnitude of questions that you face in a startup. It is all engrossing, right? And it's very easy to lose sight of your relationships outside of work when you're in that environment. So that's a problem for me. It's, uh, it's something I try. I'm trying to be vigilant about and really make space and make time to communicate and to, um, and to be present with my family, but I can't pretend that I do a great job at it. Um, so, so it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, yeah. What will the future of green hydrogen look like in a decade? Oh, in a decade, we're going to be making green hydrogen at price points that are at parity with, uh, thermal parity with fossil resources. So it's going to be cheap enough for people to burn it. And if electric hydrogen succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? Um, we will be producing electrolyzers at multi-tens of gigawatts per year volumes and run rates. Um, when I think about the renewable industry in 10 years, you know, your bet is as good as mine, but maybe it's a 600 gigawatt a year industry, solar and wind combined, maybe 750. Question for you, how much of that should be P to X? How much of that should be power sector versus deep decarbonization of sectors that power doesn't really address, that can't be electrified. That's a way to think about the market. I think that implies hundreds of gigawatts of electrolysis demand uh, globally. 
And certainly it's our intention, ambition, and goal to not only move the industry forward on cost, but the result of that moving the industry forward on cost is that we should be a market leader in terms of volume. Hmm. And this is a perfect segue into our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick like a couple seconds. Starting with Rafi, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Hmm. I'd be, I think I'd be a dog. I want to be a dog in my next life. What kind of dog? Ooh, uh, bloodhound. Oh, why? I love to smell stuff. <laughs> that is a new one on what it takes. Lots of dogs, but haven't heard that reason. <laughs> uh, what inspires you? Oh, I'm inspired by great people. Um, and, and no one great person in particular. You know, human, humans constantly surprise and inspire me. Hmm. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Outside of energy? Yeah. Ooh, maybe maybe it would be in biotech. Mm-hmm. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My parents. Easy answer. Tell me about a specific time that you failed. Gee, I can think of shutting down a couple of startups. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe more than a quick answer there. <laughs> Fair. What lesson has taken you the longest to learn? Oh, that's a good one. Um, it's actually a good thing to not be the smartest person in the room. I love that one. What's the best investment you've ever made? In myself. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I thought that the tech was the most important thing. And now I know it's not. Mm. Common theme on what it takes from founders, especially technologists who understandably fascinated by the tech and then over time realized that that wasn't the only thing or even the most important thing. Who has had the biggest influence on your life and why? Uh, my wife, Carissa, because she, she covers all my blind spots. When are you your best self? Um, when I'm under stress, I think I'm my best self. Mm-hmm. What is your worst trait? I can be inclusive to a fault. I get that. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? So in manufacturing, we do the five whys. When you're faced with a hard question you don't know the answer to, you, you ask why five times and you go deeper and deeper and deeper to get to root cause. And every time I do that on big problems in the world, it comes down to people's, people's emotions and anger and people's willingness, and, uh, willingness to fall into anger as opposed to loving each other and treating each other with respect, dignity, and understanding. So I guess the one thing I would change in the world if I could is a lot more understanding. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Oh, uh, my next lead investor. <laughs> I love it. I, I, they, might, they might just hear it. Uh, uh-huh. And if they were in front of you, what would you want to say to them? Oh, uh, that's, that's a, I don't like elevator pitches, but um, look, the thing we're doing is inevitable. Uh, it's, it's, time to, it's time to actually um, actually make it happen. So, you know, get on the bandwagon. Let's go. <laughs> what is your best quality? Well, in the work context, I think my best quality is latching on to really great people and, um, and making them part of our team. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... Arrogance. 
If you really knew me, you would know... That I'm a softie. <laughs> Success is... Deep. <laughs> and anything else? <laughs> Success is not money, that's for sure. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... I would have thought about myself and my, my mind, my, my state of mind earlier in life. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... This company, Electric Hydrogen. Hmm. I'm most proud of... My kids. Last question to build a successful startup. What it takes is... Perseverance, flexibility, vision, capital, relationships, and guts. Rafi, I have so enjoyed this conversation, getting to know you better and the company and what you're doing in the world. It's awesome. I'm really grateful to share your story with our listeners. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Emily. I'm grateful for um, the opportunity you've given me. And, and you know, the platform you've built is amazing. So it's an honor to be on it with you. Rafi Garbidian is the CEO and co-founder of Electric Hydrogen. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor of this season and this final episode of the season, Google Nest Renew. I'd also like to thank What It Takes listener Laura C.V., who said, What It Takes features amazing stories of passionate founders transforming the energy system. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures with support from PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading global corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse. You can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, this holiday season you can support the making of this show with a donation via our website, powerhouse.fund forward slash what it takes, or by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate all of them and read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who might like this episode, please send them the link. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. This is the last episode of this season and the last episode of this year. And I want to thank you for being on this journey with me. I look forward to sharing more stories with you in the new year. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. You have a really good voice on mic. Oh, thank you. You do too. You do too. No, I hate I hate my voice. On really? Hate it. Interesting. Yeah. I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah. The only thing I hate worse is how I look on videos and pictures. <laughs> well, <laughs> podcasts are for you. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs>